You know, one of the beautiful things about being a founder is that you actually get these dopamine hits like very, very regularly. There's a lot of hype these days around like why you need to build your online presence. And I think that that's just, you know, BS. Go look at the Midas list and tell me if the, like what percentage of the top 10 people are on Twitter constantly tweeting. The reality is you need to find good deals and do good deals and then make sure that you're treating everybody well along the way. Hi everyone, I'm Taiki and you're listening to New to Venture. It's the show that uncovers the secret world of venture capital from the multi-billion dollar exits to the biggest company blow-ups. If you don't know much about VC, you've come to the right place. I am super excited for today's episode because we have the one and only Jason Schumann joining us. Jason is one of the faces of the New York City venture capital scene, and once you hear his resume, you'll know why. Jason started as a founder in college building a lifestyle casual footwear brand where he raised $40,000, assembled and managed a team of multiple employees, consultants, sales reps, and over 200 brand ambassadors. He then joined Corrigan Ventures, now Alpaca VC, as a venture fellow, and then rose up the ranks to be a venture associate where he led many deals. Jason moved on to be a principal at U.S. Investment Partners, and throughout the years, he's been a board member and advisor to many organizations, like the University of Miami Entrepreneurship Program, as well as was the chief of staff to the CEO at Julius, which is an influencer marketing software. And now, Jason is a general partner at Primary Venture Partners, one of the top New York City-based VC firms where he invests in the best companies in fintech, prop tech, climate, consumer healthcare, and marketplace industries. And oh yeah, I forgot to mention, of course this man was on Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2020. So I'm already out of breath just saying all the amazing accomplishments that this man has had. So I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome, Jason Schumann. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm flattered and they should send you a shorter bio next time. <laughs> so before we dive into VC investing, I wanted to quickly touch upon that D2C footwear company that you made while in college. So I actually used to buy and sell basketball sneakers around that time and really wanted to make my own brand around it, but it never really came to fruition. So really quickly, where'd you get the idea to start the company? Man, I wish I was just buying and selling basketball shoes. I think I probably would have avoided a lot of late nights and headaches. But, um, you know, the, the, the short version of it is that I was experiencing my own pain point, right? Like a lot of founders have this. I bought a brand new pair of boat shoes back when I was in college. Um, they were popular back then, by the way. Uh, I don't wear boat shoes anymore. But, you know, bought a brand new pair of shoes, was going to wear them to class, you know, had these huge blisters on my heel. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, I'm like, it's 2010. Like, why do shoes, brand new shoes that you buy, like, give you blisters? I really didn't understand. And so, you know, as I think most entrepreneurs do, like, I just wanted to go out and figure out a solution. And so, um, I spent a couple of years, literally a couple of years, just developing the shoe itself, you know, reverse engineering it, working with factories in China, hunting down contacts, and eventually, you know, built a shoe that felt like it was like a Nike basketball shoe, but looked like, you know, it was a Sperry. Um, and at the time, I didn't think that was going to be enough to differentiate. And so I saw the rise of Warby Parker, you know, coming up. They were a bunch of guys over at Wharton at the time, uh, or just finished up at Wharton. And I saw, you know, the rise of uh, customization. And so ended up pushing forward with this idea, which is basically I wanted to build a direct-to-consumer footwear company. 
me that made, you know, sold shoes that were $100 that basically were the same comfort level of a $200, $300 shoe. And then I made it so you could put logos on the shoe, whether it be college logos, fraternities, yacht clubs, country clubs, you know, you name it. Um, and I felt like that was going to be something that resonated with the customer. Yeah, that really speaks to me. I remember spending late nights on Nike ID, just like customizing pairs of Kobe's and LeBron's and like begging my parents to buy this like $250 basketball sneaker because I thought I'd dunk in them. Can't even touch rim. Like I don't even know what I was thinking. Oh man, that makes two of us, by the way. I think uh, my my dad was like my basketball coach growing up. Like he would go to the work at like 5 a.m. by the way, and he'd like come back at like 4 p.m. just to coach our team. And I had like made this absurd looking pair of shoes on Nike ID. And I think he was just like super ashamed. They were like Nike shocks, by the way. Um, but, you know, that just showed my personality. I didn't, I didn't mind just being really unique at the time. Oh, man. No, I, I feel you. I used to beg my parents for these LeBrons. I'd buy them. And then my parents would shake their head because they didn't think they looked cool. Like, I'd get all, like, the, the green, wacky colors. Or I'd get, like, foam posits. And they're like, dude, those look like bricks. And I'm like, I think they look really cool. Um, but, yeah, I feel you there. And what an amazing story. So when you, when you look back at your time building that company, what was your favorite moment? Was it when you had broke even in just year two or what, what was that moment for you where you're like, man, this is awesome what I'm building? You know, one of the beautiful things about being a founder is that you actually get these dopamine hits like very, very regularly um, because you're continuously making progress. And, you know, when you actually think about the way that the brain works, like the neurological reward system that you're firing off of when you close a sale or when you hire somebody, you know, or you raise capital, like it continues to go and go and go, which helps founders push forward even more. The interesting part was, you know, running an e-commerce business, you got orders sent right to your phone, like all the time. And so, you know, really like seeing those first orders trickle in and, and seeing the reward, honestly, that, you know, I, I started the company with my three best friends at the time, my brother. And like to be able to see something that we had worked so hard on to start to come to fruition, um, that's definitely something I'll never forget. Ah, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, your phone must have been blowing up. And not not as much as I wish it was. I mean, we you know we 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 definitely did a good job for for some college kids. And I tell every founder I meet, you know, I think it was a, a great market timing, a good market, and very subpar execution, which like I'll take the blame for. But uh, you know, if you can if you can't execute, you can choose good markets. You should go into venture capital. So uh, here we are. There you go. Yeah, I was gonna ask like those dopamine spikes have you found that to be kind of similar in venture capital when you make that deal or a company has a markup yeah i mean i do three deals a year so you know three dopamine spikes a year whenever i get into uh whenever i get into the zone but yeah i mean i'm i'm uh, a deal maniac at the end of the day like if i'm looking at something you know a like i want to be moving incredibly fast i want to get to the bottom of it i want to meet every expert in this space talk to every customer i want to introduce them to potential customers like I want to run the tightest process in venture capital. Like that is my goal every single time I meet an amazing founder. And that definitely is a dopamine hit. But I would say the more frequent dopamine hits I get is just getting stuff done for portfolio companies. You know, people talk about adding value and then you go on their website and you see there's three people and there's like, you know, 115 portfolio companies. Like if you run the math in your head, there's no way they're adding value. Whereas, you know, we say at primary, there are certain glass balls that you have, which are things you can't drop. 
And when a company needs to get a partnership done, or if our customer acquisition costs high, like I'm going to go hunt down an introduction to that person, you know, who can be a customer, or I'm going to go out and I'm going to, you know, talk to six old heads of marketing from other competitors or companies that are public and find out, you know, what secrets they learned and then share them back with founders. And that is like the dopamine hit that I get and I really enjoy. I, you know, that's so funny that you say that because the person who referred me to you was Giuseppe Studo, you know, managing partner of 186. And on the podcast, I was asking him about building brand as a new VC firm and building reputation. And he said the thing that he cares so unbelievably deeply about is treating his founders right. And it's very obvious that you both share that. And that's actually the perfect segue for what I wanted to talk about next, which was building that brand and building that reputation within this world of VC. So just to quickly overrun some stats here, uh, you have over 10K on Twitter, like 18K on LinkedIn, Forbes 30 under 30. Um, and really funny story, whenever I talk to people about the podcast, that, like this podcast that I'm working on, uh, they ask if I have any guests lined up and you know, occasionally your name will, will pop up and every single time, because I'm based in New York as well, every single time they'll stop at your name and they'll say like, no way, like how did you land Jason Schumann? Or like, he's a really, really great guy. So as someone who has a great reputation in the world of VC, especially in New York City, what are some good practices for those who are looking to build a similar personal brand? So the first thing that I think is really important to say is like, there's a lot of hype these days around like why you need to build your online presence. And I think that that's just, you know, BS. Like you don't need to build your online presence. Go look at the Midas list and tell me if the, like what percentage of the top 10 people are on Twitter constantly tweeting. The reality is you need to find good deals and do good deals and then make sure that you're treating everybody well along the way, like full stop. But I think, you know, the, there's a couple of things that stick out to me. You know, one is, um, look, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, like everybody were like entrepreneurs, small business owners. My mom's a therapist. Like since the day I was born, I was always taught to like treat people the way that you want to be treated, treat people with respect. And that didn't, it didn't matter when I was growing up, whether it was, you know, the waiters and waitresses at restaurants. Or it was the people who worked at the factory that my dad used to take me to that he ran, you know, back in the day. And so I think that that's what I try to take into venture is A, like treat everyone with respect. And then B, like, you know, people are busy. Like if you're going to meet with somebody, bring your full self, be present and try to give everything you've got. And if you do that with every touch point, then you're going to end up in a really good spot and word of mouth will go. Um, in terms of you know, content marketing and in terms of, you know, everything that people see online, I'll be honest with you. I, I think the reason why people end up reacting, you know, well to some of my content is because it's actually just me. Like I'm not, I'm not going and like looking up Wikipedia stories because, you know, some like AI device or tool told me that like, this is more likely to go viral. I'm literally tweeting with like, I personally feel deeply at any point in time because like I'm in back-to-back -back meetings all day. So like if I'm tweeting something, it means it was a real thought and I'm like, oh shit, like I should probably like, this might be helpful to, helpful to somebody. Um, and, and the reason why, you know, I come on podcasts like this is because at the end of the day, like I recognize like, it's not like I was born on third base. It's not like, you know, my life has been incredibly smooth, but like along the way, like I've had a lot of hiccups and like had a lot of hardship. But it's to like share my story so other people can realize that, yeah, like when there are times that you're down or when there are times that you don't have 
the right connections, the right information. There are ways that you can get it. Uh, and I think that these are great outlets to try to get that exposure to people. Yeah, really, really well said. Um, there's there's a lot that I want to touch upon there. I guess the the first thing that comes to mind is you said, you know, treat people as though you want to be treated. And then these sort of actions or, or these relationships that you build really compound over time. And you touched upon really being your genuine self. And I feel like in, in my experience in venture so far, that's been really difficult, actually, because there's a lot of um, FOMO and signaling that happens in the world of VC. So something that I've personally really struggled with is that balance between making sure like I'm following along the trends because everybody's talking about them and balancing my own genuine voice. So how have you found that perfect balance for you? When you say trends, are you talking about like what the hottest market is at a given point in time? Or yeah, I would say I would say that or like especially as someone who's new to venture capital, I, I find that it's hard for me to formulate my own authentic, genuine opinions because I have so much admiration and respect for a lot of other VCs that'll tell me something. Mm. So I guess I guess that's like a better question is if you were to go back to your time as a young VC, yeah. right? And and I a lot of VCs say that it's important to be like slightly contrarian, but not for the sake of being contrarian. And that's something that I just like honestly deeply struggle with, just because I feel inexperienced. My here's my two cents. I think at the end of the day, you know, great founders need to go out and collect a bunch of data points and information. They need to take it in, and then they need to make a decision and their, create their own point of view based on all the variables and information that they're receiving. VCs are no different. And I also will say that most VCs are not that smart. It's kind of like that saying, like, when you're a kid and you're like, oh, like, you know, uh, adults don't know what they're doing. Nobody knows what they're doing. It's true. Like, most people don't know what they're doing. Most people don't do their homework on a market. And most people just listen to a podcast and regurgitate what Bill Burley said or Neil Meta says and or Keith Ravoy on, you know, on Twitter. And it's like, that's, that's, uh, you know, you, you can take in a lot of data and then you should be reading, you should be talking to customers, you should be talking to the best people in the world about things. And then you got to take a first principles approach to thinking about like, what is true, what's not true. And like, you know, call, I mean, it's not necessarily calling people out for their bullshit, but like it is saying like, you know, well, my point of view is this because of, you know, these five or six data points and just back it up with something. Yeah, totally. Well said. I feel like the, the one thing that I have been really trying to do is just like read more, just like gather as many data points as possible and then use that to synthesize some sort of conclusion. And that's like really the only way you can come up with investment theses, it seems like. There's no singular moment or epiphany in which you'll have a concrete, thoughtful investment thesis. It's through like interacting with so many different people in the space that you begin to see trends and that's how you form these investment theses. 100%. I mean, like, you know, different people, by the way, come up with things in different ways. Like Palmer Lucky, right, the founder of Anduril, he talks a lot about how he'll, like, go read papers from, like, the 1950s and, like, look at what people were talking about back then. And then he'll be like, okay, well, like, why didn't that thing work back then? It is now a better time to do that. And that's, like, you know, how things got started in the VR industry with him and Oculus. And, you know, with Anduril, I'm sure there's a lot of things that he took away from those learnings as well. 
with us and, 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 you know, we incubate companies as well as investing companies. <laughs> One mental model, you know, that I have is I will look at products that work incredibly well horizontally, you know, like you think about something like a rippling, right? And then you can say, okay, could that be applied to a vertical? So that's like one version of like an X for Y like thesis. But another one is, you know, we have a portfolio company like Stellar Health, it's a healthcare business. That, that company provides micro incentives to uh, medical professionals to be like doing the right behaviors. And, and in value-based care, it's incredibly valuable. Now you can apply what the key insight was there, micro incentives at point of care to other industries and analyze, does that behavioral model actually work in, in other markets? And so I, I do think that, you know, some things can be studied for people to create theses, but they, they need to figure out is what market dynamics are different here versus there, you know, and if they start to line up or need to be tweaked a little, then you can tweak them. But uh, it's definitely one way to think about things. Well, so how do you go about finding whether one sort of model works in one given sector versus the other? Like, do you do, you know, personal interviews or do you like come up with like a shell company and like try to gain traction on it? Or because I feel like it's, if there's no other company that's already doing it in this new sector, you don't know if it'll work or not. Or you don't know, you don't have the information to make a claim on it. Yeah, I mean, this is why I think like specialization is becoming way more important today than it was when I first got into venture. You know, we've built an expert network internally with thousands of people across every single industry that we work on here at Primary. So if I want to pressure test something in the home services space, I'm going to spin up, you know, five or 10 calls and I'm just going to like ask questions as if I was, you know, trying like a product manager or doing customer development and figure out, is this something that's interesting to them? And that's one way, by the way, but the other way is like unit economics is not something that enough seed stage firms actually think about And unit economics make a, you know, a ton, a ton of sense to like dig into. So for instance, you know, I have data now on probably 15 home services companies that are at scale that sell into small businesses. So I know what their customer acquisition cost is. I then can look at another business that wants to sell into that market with whatever, you know, the thing was from a different industry. And I need to figure out what's the ROI for the customer when we sell in and how much is that value prop going to resonate? Because if it doesn't resonate very well, the CAC is going to be much higher, right? And if it if it's not a very strong value proposition, you're not going to be able to charge a lot of money for it. And if you can't charge a lot of money for it and it's not a strong value proposition, it's probably going to be hard to make the unit economics work out. But if you can figure out a way to offer a very like, great value proposition and make a lot of money from it, that's where like the magic sauce is ultimately. That totally makes sense. And that's something that like, I honestly would have never really thought about, but it makes sense when you say it out loud. And I can tell that that comes from a lot of experience in the space and talking to a lot of people. So for those who are new to venture capital or like analysts or like having fellowships, just like you were a couple of years, maybe like a decade back by now, but. Oh man, I'm, um, I have not been, I'm not that old. I'm only 32. <laughs> give, give me, give me a break. Come on. <laughs> um, so what I love about these conversations is that I, I get to learn about new mental frameworks, 
but that, those mental frameworks like take a long time to build. So I guess getting back to the original question that, that I wanted to get at, which was looking back to when you were a younger VC, how did you build these mental frameworks and did they help you rise through the ranks within New York Venture Capital? The reality is the industry has changed an immense amount over the last eight years. It was a cottage industry eight years ago. New York was a small venture market eight years ago. New York, barely anybody led investments, you know, back in New York and seed back then. People used to have deal calls every other week sharing deal flow. Like funds were sub $100 million. No, no one was specializing or very few people were specializing. It was just different. And so my job back then was to meet as many people and get as good a deal flow as I could and then be a connector. And so, you know, I hosted dinners and I would bring really special people together that I thought got along and I would connect all those people. And, um, you know, I think by a, like being the center node of a lot of different ecosystems and really amazing people. Cause like, if you start inviting amazing people, chances are they have other friends who are amazing people and like your network grows. And, you know, uh, I think like Speed of learning is ultimately about, you know, surface area and commitment, like time spent. And so I just did a lot of that. And like, I listened a lot, you know, we have two ears and one mouth. I think you should try to work in those proportions. Um, and over time though, now I've become a lot more specialized. And I will say though, the foundation of me being a generalist back in the day means I can now pull things from like, you know, I read this S1 from this company in that market three or four years ago, or I, you know, invested in a, you know, digital wallet for teachers in 2015. How can that business model potentially, or those learnings apply to something else? And that is a, a matter of time, but you can accelerate learnings by either going deep into one market or, you know, listening to shows like this and Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest the Best and Harry Stebbings, a lot of information is out there. Yeah, absolutely. So now, I mean, you're a GP at one of the best firms out there. How can a young analyst that joins a team really stand out to you? So we hired two analysts recently. So I'll give you an example, like, you know, Gabby Lorenzi, who, you know, is working for my partners, uh, Brian, Brad, and Cassie, you know, she was a data scientist before and she went out and she was blogging about really, really interesting stuff. And she showed her ability to get deep into things. And, you know, our other analyst, Bryce, um, I've never received so many emails from people who just liked somebody and said that he was really smart. And like, you know, the team at, and I think it was NEA, you know, multiple people shot us a note about this guy and said he was really good. And candidly, like, I was a little nervous just because like Gen Z, you know, is, uh, can, can like, I think they look at venture in this like beautiful light and like, oh, it's such an easy job. I'm going to go out and I'm going to have, you know, Aperol spritzes on a rooftop and like, you know, we are constantly paranoid here at primary that, that, that somebody else is going to come in and, and run past us. And, you know, we want people that want to like put their head down they want to work and they want to be the best at their craft. And I think that both of them had shown it time and time again, that they were exceptional at every step along the way in their career. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to meet them at some point as well. Uh, and so for you, as you rose up the ranks at Courage and now Alpaca, right? What were some of the good practices that you had implemented that you think helped you rise up those ranks super fast? 
man, I think like the staying on top of like your best network nodes, treating people well, listening to podcasts every single day, reading and consuming as much content as possible. I mean, when I got my job after Alpaca, um, Mark Kirsten, who started GLG, when he would introduce me to friends of his, he would say like, Jason's like the rain man of venture deals. And I was like, what does that mean? And, and he's like, he's like, watch, I'll give you a company. You tell me the last round that they raised, how much capital they raised and who led the deal. And like back then I could like rip off like, you know, whatever companies, because I was studying the term sheet and, you know, so closely every day just to try to like figure out what trends were happening in the market. I love, have you watched Suits by any chance? Yeah. Yeah. You are Mike Ross. If you walk in there, memorizing the whole LSAT book, just knocking him out like that. That's super impressive. And not not anymore, man. I'm like, uh, <laughs> you're, you you realize that your hard drive only has so much memory, and uh, <laughs> it, start, it starts to fade. I think after a certain point. <laughs> I mean, I I have a lot of respect for the effort and work that you put into venture, and you must have been you know very passionate about it from the very beginning, right? So. That, uh, that really goes to show and obviously has bloomed into a wonderful career so far. Uh, I, I kind of want to transition into how your role as a VC has changed throughout your time in it. So when you were first joining as a fellow, you said you, said you remembered all the deals and had all like the terms remembered. Um, and I'm assuming that a lot of your early life as a VC had to do with sourcing and due diligence and like networking. Has that changed as you've become a GP? You know, I used to say like everything was like the same job, different firm. And I could not believe that at all. It's like completely different now. Um, you know, I, I mean, look, I, I was incredibly, incredibly lucky. Like Ryan Friedman at Corrigin and David Goldberg at Corrigin. A, took an incredibly big shot on me and like gave me an opportunity. Mark Gerson took an incredibly big shot on me and gave me an opportunity. I went into both of those places though and I was able to be a full stack investor from day one because they let me. And that was powerful because that means you needed to not only learn how to find deals and look at deals and you know, but you also have to learn how to like win deals, and, like get into deals. And then you need to learn how to support deals and how to get your deals financed. And by the way, that is an incredibly important skill. So those, those things like kept, you know, they were the same things for a while. And then I got to primary and man, these guys just like, there was just a different bar like set here, like that Ben and Brad had been like operating on. And there's a different infrastructure here, you know, like we had six people when I started, we have like 40, I think now I can't keep track. Um, but long story short here, like I'm on, I think like 10 or 11 boards now. Like my day is not spent doing outbound. My day is not spent hanging out with my other friends that are VCs anymore. My day is not spent, you know, uh, uh, just like kind of doing all these like different social activities that I used to do. My day is like structured very, very, very tightly now. Like I have to do, you know, internal leadership meetings. I have to do LP meetings. I have to go to board meetings. Um, I have to manage, you know, two different people, which like, yeah, like they're doing outbound and I'm helping them try to remove blockers and be better at things. And, um, I'm managing diligence processes and I'm looking at questions that are going to be asked on those calls. And I'm like really helping them think through things, but 
um, there's not enough time of the day for me to do all the stuff that I used to do. So it's mainly now like a lot of meeting with, you know, later stage CEOs or experts in categories or potential customers of things or um, meeting incredibly exciting on the cutting edge, like companies of the markets that I really am interested in and want to deploy capital on. Gotcha. So yeah, it sounds like the, the role has, you know, changed quite a bit. And candidly, now that you've seen both sides, is there a side that you enjoy more being on? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, they're just different. It's all part of the evolution. You know, if you want to be on like the Midas list one day, you're eventually going to have to do something else that's like, you know, the you're going to have to change because you're going to have to have had deployed plenty of capital. Um, I will say, though, that like, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are. It's like, you know, it's just like with founders, right? Like founders start at C, then they go to A, they go to B. And at every point that we talk about how like a founder needs to become a new person at every stage, I am feeling that, you know, deeply at this point in my career because my old habits, my old routines, they just don't work anymore. And so I, I've had to reinvent myself. And, you know, I remember Josh Koppelman told me two years ago, you, you know, I, I went to him for some advice and he's like, look, at seed stage, you're going to have to reinvent your network, your network every every seven years and i'm like well that makes sense that makes sense i'm seven years in because 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 you're you go from like you know maybe being able to invest in your friends to your friends then aging out and being successful to then like now you got to go find the next crop of incredible people and you know you go from needing to constantly hunt right and being intentional to now deals are coming to you and then do you want to meet with all those deals though? Or do you want to like go still hunt a little bit? And I think that there's a, it's, it's hard. I mean, I was literally looking at a, a, a time audit with, uh, with, with one of our, our team members the other day. And like, it's like, I get like 180 emails a day. Like I can't go through my inbox and like actually triage all those things, but that's because I also put a lot of work in early in my career and it's now compounded. I time. Yeah. Wow. I, I kind of want to touch upon something tangential and something that you previously mentioned here is a huge misunderstanding about the world of venture capital is that like startups are always pitching VC firms. And while that is true, some of the best deals, the VC firms are the ones that really have to pitch the startups to get allocation. So for you, how do you get in that room? How do you go out and win those deals? Yeah, so I, I got introduced to two companies uh, over the last two weeks that we ended up going really deep on. And when I got introduced, um, I responded to them before they responded to me. And I sent an investment thesis basically with like five bullets that showed what I believed was to be fundamentally true about the market they were playing in, what they were doing, what excited me and what questions I had. Total transparency and outlined our process. And, you know, we ran out of hard and, uh, you know, one of the companies I am hoping, you know, tonight will end up, uh, getting a term sheet out and hopefully we'll end up winning the deal. But, you know, the founder was sitting literally in this room with me yesterday and he said to me, you know, your product is your process. And, and when, from the, literally the first email that I got from you, I knew that we were alive. Oh, I love that. That's a fantastic story. And, and is that something that you'd always done with the companies that you were interested in? It's something that, um, 
we started to do, I would say a couple of years ago, because as the market started to like move super fast and like the market got way more competitive, we felt like, you know, transparency with founders was incredibly important. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we've done a lot of things behind the scenes that, that have, you know, differentiated our process, a lot of which I probably don't want to share. But what I will say is that like, um, intentionality, uh, and transparency are two of the things that will ultimately make you stand out. Oh, love it. Love it, Jason. And I want to take a walk down memory lane, switch gears a little bit. When you look back at your time as a young professional and really your whole entire career, what was the moment where you had realized that venture capital was the career that was meant for you? I still don't even think I, I've realized it. Um, you know, I, I I got into venture capital because I had to. Like, I got into venture capital because my first company didn't work. I was, you know, I had no money in my bank account. Um, I was literally like, you know, driving for Uber and hustling to source deals. But I, and, and I didn't have the confidence to go start another company again. And I genuinely believe that I'm also unemployable. So, like... Like, I, I think that, that uh, for me, like venture was like all about, I want to learn quickly about different industries. I want to meet a great team. I want to, you know, be able to raise capital easier. And then the bigger thing is like, it's very aligned with my why in life about how we can give other people this comp the confidence and skills to go live a more fulfilling life. And so once I got into VC, I think the idea of, you know, A, being, you know, the first investor to have conviction in another human being B, being the first investor that's right. And C, uh, if you can be the best in the world at VC, like you're going up against like unbelievably talented people. Like keep in mind, like, you know, Reed Hoffman after he started LinkedIn went to go be a VC. Like Peter Thiel started PayPal, then he went and be became a VC. Alfred Lin was the CFO at Zappos and then became a VC. Like these guys are not messing around. And so if you really want to test your skills, like, there's no better uh, professional field to uh, to get into than to go up against the best of the business. I love that. Yeah, truly some of the, the smartest people of this generation have built huge, huge companies and then turned to VC. So one feeling that I've always had was like I was at this networking event for New York Tech Week. I was in this room at every corner. I was meeting someone who was building something really interesting or very established in the VC world. And I just felt like I'm in the right room. Like I'm meeting the right people and it feels good to have these really intellectually stimulating conversations all the time. And, uh, and just like this one, I just want to ask so far, what has been the highlight of your career in VC? What was that one moment when I, when I say highlight like that, what's the first moment that comes to your mind? There's, there's two quick ones. One was um, when I left Corrigin and went to go work for Mark. Uh, one of the founders who, whose company I invested in uh, while I was at, uh, at Corrigin called me and he said, hey, um, I've really enjoyed working with you and I want to give you advisory shares in the business to stay involved. And like, I was 25 at the time, like, but that was the type of thing where like, you know, you're putting in the work and like somebody's recognizing you for that. Like that, that felt really good. Um, and then the other was, you know, I had the opportunity to, um, you know, invest in a guy that I had known since he was like 17 and I was a founder at the, you know, the same time. And, you know, when that, we ended up leading that deal and, and I remember the business was, 
uh, it was doing great when we invested. It was not doing so great, you know, uh, I think like t 12 months later and, you know, we all rolled up our sleeves and, um, you know, I worked with him and, and for a month straight, I basically went out and did a bunch of research for him and we ended up pivoting the business and, uh, man, it's been a rocket ship since. And I think, you know, they went from, uh, very few people to almost a thousand people in a couple of years and, um, you know, to see him grow as a human being and to see his co-founder grow has been awesome. I think there's a really important connection here is that you have a lot of passion in providing value to those around you. And I think that's like a really key trait for really successful VCs that I've been seeing. So something that I definitely have to keep in mind is how can I, as someone who is new to venture, try my best to provide genuinely helpful value instead of like fake helpful value, which I feel like a lot of young VCs do. Unfortunately, our time has come to an end, and after a lovely and fun conversation, it's time for the last ceremonial ask. It's going to be three rapid-fire questions. So in the spirit of being new to venture, if you were to start your career from scratch, no connections, same knowledge, what would you do to get back to where you are now? I would specialize from day one and go become an absolute animal at whatever market, the most well-connected person with the most insights and just like share it publicly. Love it. Shout out a VC that you think has been killing the game right now, maybe has some unique takes, wrote a fantastic article, or maybe someone who's personally helped you grow. David Frankel at Founder Collective, I met him on a plane ride, you know, years ago. And, um, you know, he has just been such a good human. And then I'll actually give a, a, sh a shout out to Chris Saka, uh, who, you know, I, I've never I've never actually met. I saw him for the first time person the other day. And uh, him wearing his cowboy shirts and him just being himself, even though sometimes he might be over the edge, uh, he he's himself. And I think that that's kind of inspired me to just say exactly what I want to say, you know, socially and, and outwardly. Oh, love it. Love it. Um, Chris Sack is also one of my, my idols, I guess you can say. So hopefully one day I will get a chance to meet him as well. Uh, the last question is shout out a startup that you believe can change the world. Yeah. So Every one of the portfolio companies I invested in, I absolutely believe, but uh, there's a company called Helena. Um, we're investors in it. They make human glycosylated proteins in a lab. Their first one is, is a product uh, called human lactoferrin, and it's, it's more environmentally friendly than cow lactoferrin. It's also going to be better for humans. Uh, I believe it will show in clinical studies. Um, and I think that it can change the world because ultimately, you know, once these studies are done, hopefully it'll show that not only can it improve babies' immune systems, but it can also improve endurance. Professional athletes have neurocognitive behavior, neurogenerative uh, or, uh, improvements, and, you know, just ultimately be an ingredient that will be as common as fish oil, DHA, and all that good stuff. What a sick product and a great way to end the show. Thank you so much for joining me on New to Venture, Jason. I'm really looking forward to seeing all the other amazing investments that you'll make. We didn't even talk about Naya Homes, but I'm a big fan of them. And uh, I have Julia Malpi coming on the show later on this month. So we'll probably talk about it then. But Jason, thank you so much. Take care. Yeah, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Have a good one.